0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining the BBA's preparation for 2023 proxy and reporting season program. My name is Caroline Tolo I'm a partner in the corporate group at Wilmer Hale. I'm joined today by my colleague, Rebecca Chang, special counsel in the corporate practice group at Wilmer Hale, and Bruno, a corporate and employment law partner at Mintz, and John Condon, a corporate and securities partner at Mintz. In the time we have today, we'll discuss a range of <coughs> recent and year-end disclosure and governance topics impacting the 10K proxy statement. And other filings and disclosures. Um, in no particular order, we plan to cover universal proxy, officer exculpation under Delaware law, amendments to Rule 10B51, pay versus performance, new SEC clawback requirements, updates to certain Edgar filing requirements, a few whistleblower reminders, and assessing board composition and preparing to nominate directors. So without further ado, I will kick us off with the universal proxy. Okay. In November 2021, the SEC amended its proxy rules to mandate the use of universal proxy cards in all contested director elections and to provide other changes that impact all director elections. The new rules apply to shareholder meetings held after August 31st, 2022. The amended rules require that all director elections, including uncontested elections, um, Uh, contain against and abstain voting options on the proxy card where such options have legal effect under state law. Schedule 14A also now requires disclosure in the proxy statement about the effect of all voting options provided, including the effect of a withhold vote. Under the new rules, all proxy statements must disclose the deadline under Rule 14A19 for shareholders to give notice of dissident nominations in connection with the company's next annual meeting. The SEC issued a CDI that provides that where a company's advance notice bylaw requires notice earlier than the notice required by Rule 14A19, a company is permitted to disclose only its earlier advance notice bylaw deadline to satisfy Rule 14A5. So said another way, Rule 14A19 establishes a minimum, not a maximum notice period for a dissident shareholder to inform the registrant of its intent to present its own director nominees. And Rule 14A19 does not override or supersede a longer period established in a company's governing documents. The CDI also notes that to the extent um, the company's advanced notice bylaw does not set forth the same notice requirements outlined in 14A19, the company's proxy statement must clearly state the need for the dissident shareholder to comply with the additional requirements of Rule 14A19. Turning to the requirements in connection with contested director elections, under Rule 14A19, separate proxy cards issued by a company and a dissident shareholder for a contested director election must include both the company's and the dissident's respective nominees, so that shareholders are able to provide proxy voting instructions in favor of any combination of properly nominated director candidates up to the number of authorized seats for election. While management and dissident proxy cards are not required to be identical, they must follow certain requirements with regard to presentation, including that the card set out the names of all duly nominated director nominees, clearly distinguish between management nominees, dissident nominees, and any proxy access nominees, list nominees in alphabetical order by last name within each group of those nominees, use the same font type, style, and size for all names, prominently disclose the maximum number of directors for whom the shareholder can vote, and prominently disclose the treatment and effect of a proxy executed in a manner that grants authority for few or more nominees than the number of directors being elected, or does not grant authority to vote for any nominees. The amended rules also include new requirements for companies and other persons soliciting proxies for director nominees, including a requirement that dissidents solicit holders of a minimum of 67% of the voting power of shares entitled to vote in the election. In addition, the company and a dissident must provide timely notice to each other in connection with contested elections. So the company must provide notice to the dissident of the names of the company's nominees, at least 50 calendar days before the anniversary of the prior year's annual meeting date. Dissidents are required to provide notice to the company of the names of dissident nominees, as well as their intent to solicit the holders of shares representing at least 67% of the voting power, um, no later than 60 calendar days before the um, anniversary of the prior year's annual meeting date. Where a company's advanced notice bylaw provision requires dissidents to provide earlier notice of its nominees, that longer notice period controls as the 60 day notice period in the rule is again a minimum, not a maximum. In addition, a dissident must file a definitive proxy statement by the later of 25 calendar days prior to the date of the meeting or five calendar days after the date that the company files its definitive proxy statement. Um, As the last bullet in the slide suggests, in light of rule 14 a nineteen. Companies should review their bylaws to determine whether updates should be made to the advanced notice and proxy access provisions. So for example, we are recommending that companies consider updates such as requiring a nominating shareholder to provide a representation that the shareholder has complied and will comply with all applicable requirements of state law and the Exchange Act, requiring a written consent from a proposed nominee to being named in the company's proxy statement and proxy card as a nominee, Requiring a nominee, a nominating shareholder to state in its notice whether it intends to solicit proxies for director nominees in accordance with Rule 14A19 and to also provide the notice and information required under Rule 14A19 providing that the proxies and votes solicited by a nominating shareholder will be disregarded if the shareholder does not comply with 14A-19 and requiring a nominating shareholder to provide reasonable evidence that it has met the requirements of new Rule 14A-19. So with that, I will turn it over to John to discuss recent amendments to Delaware law um, regarding officer exculpation.
1: Great, thanks, Caroline. Um, my name is John Condon. I'm from Vince, and, and as Caroline mentioned, uh, I'll be talking about uh, recent changes to um, officer exculpation under Delaware law. Um, so, as, as companies think about the proposals they, they plan to include in this year's proxy statement, you know, director nominations, you know, ratification of the appointment of auditors, and pay votes and others. Um, this year, Delaware corporations should be considering including a proposal to amend their certificate of incorporation to provide for officer exculpation. Uh, So I'll I'll get into um, the four things I think boards should consider when determining um, to include an officer exculpation charter amendment proposal. Um, But first, I wanted to provide some background on what what is officer exculpation. Um, So for many years, um, Section 102B7 of the Delaware General Corporation Law has allowed Delaware corporations to eliminate or limit the personal liability of directors uh, for monetary damages to the corporation or its stockholders for breaches of fiduciary duty of care. Um, which is referred to as exculpation. Um, in August 2022, the Delaware law was amended to now permit a Delaware corporation to include an officer exculpation provision in its charter for the exculpation of officers as well. Um, and it's important to note that exculpation is not self-executing. So, for a corporation to provide exculpation for its directors and officers, um, an exculpation provision must be included in its certificate of incorporation. And and many, many so many companies have an exculpation provision for its directors. And so this year they should be considering adding um, a a similar provision for officers. Um, Now it's important to note there are certain limitations on the ability of companies to exculpate directors and officers. Um, So for example, exculpation does not apply to breaches of fiduciary duty of loyalty, um, acts or missions not in good faith or which involve an intentional misconduct or knowing violation of law. Um, For directors, the unlawful payment of dividends, Um, and any transaction in which a director officer derived an improper personal benefit. In addition for officers, um, stockholder derivative claims are are not able to be exculpated, um, including for breaches of fiduciary duty of care. So for officer exculpation, it really means, they're limiting or eliminating the liability for uh, for breaches of fiduciary duty of care um, for direct stockholder action. Um, In addition, officer exculpation may be extended to um, specified officers only, um, which are included on the slide, so that you the president, CEO, chief operating officer, chief financial officer, chief legal officer, controller, treasurer, chief accounting officer, um, named executive officers as defined under the SEC rules, and other officers who have consented to be identified as officers. Um, so one question you may have is, is: how are the proxy vote advisory firms such as ISS and Glass Lewis viewing these proposals? Um, well, in its uh, in ISS's two thousand twenty three uh, U.S. proxy voting guidelines, ISS has indicated they will assess officer exculpation proposals on a case by case basis. And in assessing whether to support an officer exculpation proposal, ISS has indicated it will consider the stated rationale for the proposed amendment and the extent the amendment would eliminate officers liability for monetary damages for violating the duty of care. Um, Our our understanding is that in practice, so far ISS is recommended in favor of all or substantially all of the officer exculpation charter member proposals that have been been presented. Um, In terms of Glass-Lewis, in their 2023 policy guidelines, like ISS, Glass-Lewis has indicated they will closely evaluate proposals Um, these proposals on a case by case basis. Um, However, Glass-Lewis has also indicated they will generally recommend against such proposals, um, eliminating monetary liability for breaches breaches of fiduciary duty of care uh, for officers, unless there's a compelling rationale for the adoption, uh, which is provided by the board, and and the provisions are reasonable. Um, So public companies incorporated in Delaware should therefore consider including a proposal in this year's proxy statement, uh, which would amend the charter to include an officer exculpation provision, but should consider four important considerations. Uh, One, present a compelling rationale, uh, consider the company's record of of corporate governance practices, assess stockholder composition, and adjust the timing uh, for filing the proxy statement. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about each of these. Um, so first, the company should be able to present a compelling rationale and, and you know often that would be that you know the company wants to attract and retain uh, officers. Um, the pr- provision should also be limited so as to align with Delaware law. Um, companies should also you know, consider talking with their D&O insurers to see whether um, you know adopting such provision may have a positive impact on on o insurance premiums. Uh, because often you know uh, officers that are faced with these sorts of claim fiduciary duty of care claims are often identified by by the company um and and so you know that that can you know could have an impact on on you know insurance premiums uh, for the company um, second, as I mentioned, consider whether the company is currently engaged in any fiduciary duty lit- litigation of the type that will be exculpated, uh, um, or whether the company has a poor record of corporate governance. Because um, those, those are factors that you know, we think ISS and, and, and Glass Lewis may, you know, may, may, may consider not, you know, recommending a proposed proposal for officer exculpation. Um, and then third, you know, assess, assess the company's stockholder composition and the likelihood of ISS and Glass Lewis support. Um, so, remember, if, if it's a, a charter amendment, it will typically require an affirmative vote of a majority of the shares outstanding, not just a majority of the shares voting. So, it's a higher threshold than most of the other proposals that are, that are typically included in a proxy statement. Um, in addition, brokers don't have discretion to vote on behalf of their clients on this proposal. So, you need to have you know, the stockholders actually vote um, in, in order to, to you know, approve the, the proposal. Um, um, so, you know, companies should assess, you know, do they have a significant retail stockholder base, which tends to be less likely to vote and, and whether, you you know, whether you'd be able to get a majority of the shares to vote for the proposal. Um, we're aware of at least one example so far of a failed officer exculpation proposal because they didn't get a sufficient vote um, as, you know, a company that that had a, uh, we, we think, had a high retail um, stockholder base. Um, uh Another point is that uh, you know ISS has has generally been supportive of all or substantially all the proposals uh, so far, uh, but again, it's important to assess you know whether there are reasons from a corporate governance perspective um, that that a company may have difficult uh, difficulty obtaining support from ISS or Glass Lewis. And then lastly, um, you know because it's a it's a charter amendment proposal, it would require a preliminary proxy statement, so it's important for companies to you know. Uh, adjust their proxy statement filing timeline uh, so that they can can file a preliminary proxy statement. Um, A preliminary proxy statement must be filed at least 10 calendar days prior to the definitive proxy statement, so companies would typically need to build in an extra 10 calendar days into the timeline um, to account for the preliminary proxy statement. In addition, you know the SEC could you know can always choose to review a preliminary proxy statement. Which you know, if they did choose to review the proxy statement, they would typically have 30 days to provide comments, um, which would then you know need to be resolved before the company could file a definitive proxy statement and move uh, move forward with their uh, with their annual meeting. Um, so again, you know we think you know we think companies should be considering these propo- this proposal this year. So, you know, some companies are moving forward. I think some companies you know may decide to wait a year. Um, um, but you know, it's it's something that, that companies should consider um, and 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 consider these these factors in, in making that assessment. Um, so with, with that, I will turn it over to um, Anne Bruno, who will talk about uh, Rule Ten B Five One plan amendments.
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks, John. I'm Anne Bruno from from Mintz as well, and I'm going to walk through some recent changes. To um, the Rule 10b5-1 plan affirmative defense and some related disclosures in some uh, in an SEC uh, set of amendments. Um, so, as you probably all know, uh, final rules to amend uh, Rule 10b5-1 were adopted in December of 2022. Those rules will be uh, effective on February 27th of 2023. I'll talk in a minute about some of the. Transition rules for disclosures related to 10b-51 plans and um, option um, grants that uh, were included in these rules, but for purposes of the requirements with respect to 10b-51 plans themselves, those rules will go into effect on February 27, 2023. So. The rules basically amend Rule 10B51 to impose new conditions to the availability of the affirmative defense. And uh, remember that generally the affirmative defense is available to uh, people who put 10B51 plans in place when they are not in possession of material non public information. And then the sales can occur at a future date or purchases can occur at a future date, even if the person at that time has material non-public information. These new rules impose some additional conditions, um, primarily uh, in connection with waiting periods for adopting new 10B51 plans before they can begin selling or purchasing shares, and some requirements as to how plans might work together if an executive or director has more than has more than one plan. So the first requirement is a new mandatory cooling off period for non-executives, officers, non-executive officers and directors. That's a mandatory cooling off period of at least 30 days. For directors and officers, the cooling off period is longer. It's the later of 90 days or two business days following the disclosure of the issuer's financial results for the fiscal quarter in which the plan was adopted but not to exceed 120 days. Um, there's also a limitation on multiple or overlapping rule 10b-5-1 plans uh, in the new rules. There's an exception to that for sell to cover plans. Um, that exception applies to sell to cover plans for, for instance, restricted stock or restricted stock units vesting. It's not an exception that would apply to sell to cover plans that have to do with option exercise tax withholding or um, option exercise uh, sales to cover the exercise price since those uh, option exercises would be in the discretion of of the timing of that would be in the discretion of the officer or director. Uh, The rules also have a new requirement that only one single trade plan can benefit from the affirmative defense every 12 months under the new rules. Um, and there's a new director and officer uh, certification required that confirms that the director or officer was acting in good faith when they put the new 10B51 plan into place and they had, and that they had no material non-public information when they put the new uh, 10B5-1 plan into place. There's also an added requirement. To act in good faith with respect to 10B51 plan implement, implementation during the lifetime um, of the plan. Shifting now to some of the new disclosure requirements that are associated with these new rule changes, um, there's, there's a new SK item 408A that will require quarterly disclosures in a company's Form 10Q or Form 10K of any director and officer trading arrangements that were put in place during the quarter. Um, for With respect to the transition rules for those new requirements, for most companies that will be um, in for a 1231 year end company, the first time to include those new disclosures will be in the 10Q for the June 30, 2023 Uh, quarter. Uh, For smaller reporting companies, the new disclosure will come up for the first time in the 10-K for the December 31, 2023 um, uh, for fiscal year end. That disclosure, the new item 408-A disclosure, is in um, part two of form 10-Q and 10-K. In contrast, there's a new item 408-B, which will require annual disclosure of insider trading policies in the Form 10-K and proxy statement, and then the filing of the policy as an exhibit to the Form 10-K. That requirement is included in part three of the Form 10-K. So that information can be included in the proxy statement and then incorporated by reference into the Form 10-K. Um, As kind of a separate matter, related but separate, there's a new item 402X um, that was included in, this, in these new rules that has to do with the reporting of option grant timing and requires disclosure with respect to certain option grants. Um, so it's new item 402X, and it will require a disclosure of the company's policies and practices on option grant timing, whether the company grants options at a particular time of year or has a... Um, a certain policy to avoid granting options at uh, a time when the company might have material information that it's waiting to disclose. The new uh, 402X also requires tabular disclosure of named executive officer um, option awards that occur within four business days before or one business day after the filing of a Form 10Q, a Form 10K, or an 8K that discloses material non-public information. And that disclosure would not uh, would, in, would include information about the option grants and also the percentage change in the market value of the securities underlying the award between one trading day before and one trading day after the disclosure of the material non-public information. And finally, also uh, separate but related, There's a new checkbox now on Forms 4 and Form 5 to indicate whether the transaction disclosed on the Section 16 form was made pursuant to a Rule 10b-5-1 plan, um, as well as uh, a new Form 4 requirement for gift transactions to be disclosed on a Form 4 rather than a Form 5. Those new rules are effective uh, April 1st, 2023. Um, So, uh, another transition rule to, to keep in mind for Section 16 filings that are made uh, after April 1st. And I think that brings us to pay versus performance, a disclosure with Rebecca.
3: Great. Thanks, Anne. Uh, so I'll- I am Rebecca Chang from Wilmer Hale, and I will be providing an overview of the new pay versus performance rules. Um, so, as required by Dodd Frank in August 2022, the SEC adopted the long-awaited pay versus performance disclosure rules, um, which add new item 402b of Regulation S-K, item 402v, as in Victor, uh, requires. Public companies to disclose the relationship between the executive compensation actually paid to the company's named executive officers and the company's financial performance. The disclosure is required beginning with proxy and information statements that are required to include executive compensation disclosure for fiscal years ended on or after December 16, 2022 which means that calendar year and companies will be required to include the disclosures beginning with this year's um, proxy statements. Um, The new disclosure will also be required in special meeting proxy statements that require disclosure of executive compensation information. Um, so something to keep in mind is that these re- disclosure requirements do not apply to emerging growth companies and foreign private issuers, but do apply to smaller reporting companies, which are allowed to make certain scale disclosures. So, in terms of the underlying um, substantive requirements under Reg S-K Item 402 v, there are three new major disclosure requirements. The first is um, the pay versus performance table. For companies that are not smaller reporting companies, the table requires the following information. Um, And on the slide, you see the headings there and I'll just quickly go through each of the the headings and the information that's required. Um, So the first is the total compensation as reported in the summary comp table for the principal executive officer and the average of such amounts for other named executive officers. The compensation, actually pay, so this is different than the summary comp table compensation. So the compensation actually paid to the PEO and the average of such amounts for the other NEOs calculated using a um, very prescribed formula that requires adjustments that are specified in item 402B, the cumulative total shareholder return for both the company and its peer group, the net income of the company, a company selected measure, which I will get to in a second, any additional financial performance measures other than the company selected measure that the company chooses to include in additional columns to the table, which is optional. And then um, you also need to provide footnote disclosure to the table describing each of the amounts deducted and added to total compensation of NEOs to determine the amount of the compensation actually paid. So uh, a company selected measure is a financial measure, sorry, is a financial performance measure selected by the company that in its assessment represents the most important financial performance measure that is not otherwise required to be disclosed in the table um, and is used by the company to link compensation actually paid to the company's annuals to the company's financial performance for the most recent fiscal year. Um, For companies that are not smaller reporting companies, the pay versus performance disclosure must be provided for each of the company's past five completed fiscal years. But in the first uh, year of required disclosure, only three years are required with an additional year added in each of the two subsequent years. The second requirement is a uh, clear description, which can be provided graphically, narratively or through a combination that explains the relationship between the executive compensation actually paid to the NEOs as compared to each of the company's cumulative TSR, net income, the company's selected measure and any other measure the company has to the table. And also compares the company's cumulative TSR and the cumulative TSR of the company's selected peer group. The description should address the full range of years that's required to be presented in the table. The third new requirement is um, a tabular unranked list of at least three and no more than seven of the most important financial performance measures used by the company to link executive compensation actually paid for the most recently completed fiscal year to company performance. Um, if a company does not use any financial measures to link executive compensation actually paid to company performance, the list is not required. Um, the list must include the company selected measure that's disclosed in the table. If fewer than three f- financial performance measures were used to link executive comp to company performance, then all measures that were u- used must be included in the list. And uh, finally, the list may include non financial performance measures if the company determines that each of those measures are among its three to seven most important performance measures. And the list includes at least three financial performance measures or such lesser number actually used by the company in the last fiscal year. So all of these new disclosures are required to be tagged in inline XBRL. um, And the requirement is phased in for smaller reporting companies. This will be actually the first time that inline XBRL will apply to proxy statement disclosures. So um, for calendar companies that are required to provide this disclosure, um, and since it will be the first time for inline XBRL, definitely um, need to just build in a little bit more time um, since it's the first time XBRL will be required for proxy statements. So in terms of where this disclosure needs to be included in proxy statements, there is some flexibility. The disclosure is not required to be part of CDNA. Um, And it's actually, well, we recommend to not include as well, depending on circumstances, but generally uh, preferable not to include as part of CDNA in order to minimize issues with unintentional incorporation by reference into the 10K. Um, However, the required disclosure must appear with and be in the same format as the other required executive compensation disclosures required by SK item 402 um, and is also uh, included within the scope of the say pay vote. However, um, it is not covered by the required compensation report unless the required disclosure is part of CDNA. Pay versus performance disclosure, um, just a reminder, not required in 10K registration statements. Um, and I, I think I just mentioned, um, you want to try to avoid unintentional incorporation by reference into 10Ks. And registration statements um, when you intend to not do so. Um, And then just quickly moving on to pay versus performance requirements for smaller reporting companies. There are um, several differences uh, to the the requirements that I just went over for non smaller reporting companies. Um, Just a quick summary first, uh, smaller reporting companies are only required to present three instead of five fiscal years of. Disclosure and in the first year disclosure, um, these companies are only required to provide two years of disclosure instead of three, and then you add an additional year in one subsequent year. In addition, uh, smaller smaller reporting companies are not required to adjust for disclosed amounts related to pension plans or determining executive compensation actually paid. Um, Not required to present peer group TSR company selective measure or um, provide the tabular list of most important financial performance measures. Uh, Further, smaller reporting companies are only required to provide a clear description of the relationship between the compensation actually paid to the NEOs and the company's TSR and net income. And also, as I mentioned previously, the inline XBRL requirement is phased in for smaller reporting companies. until the uh, third filing for which the disclosure is required. So just wrapping up quickly, uh, the summary of these rules, some of the steps um, to prepare to require disclosure include um, engaging external resources and experts, such as comp consultants, equity evaluation teams, and actuaries, among others, uh, discussing the new rule requirements with um, the compensation committee, management, and others involved in the proxy statement disclosures and also coordinating with um, the accounting team and equity plan and pension plan administrators, particularly in regard to tracking all outstanding awards to NEOs, period valuations, and periodic changes in value. So I think that's it.
2: So I'm gonna um, now switch to new SEC clawback requirements and uh, talk a little bit about new rules that will be implemented, new requirements that will be implemented over the course of this this coming year, uh, 2023. So in October, 2022, the SEC adopted a new Exchange Act Rule, 10D-1, which requires listed companies to implement policies requiring um, clawback of incentive-based compensation, that has been erroneously awarded to current or former executive officers. So let's um, unpack that a little bit uh, in terms of what the requirements actually apply to. And then we'll uh, I'll touch briefly on kind of the implementation of this and, and how the new rules will actually come into effect. So, um, so the clawback required by the new rules is Triggered by the requirement to prepare an accounting restatement due to material noncompliance with a financial reporting requirement. Now, um, unlike the proposed rules, the new rules are will actually apply to kind of big R restatements, which are restatements that were mater- that are material to previously issued financial statements, as well as kind of what's known as little R restatements, which are restatements required. Um, not because they are material to previously issued financial statements, but because if the uh, if the change is not made, the misstatement will be material uh, and is being made in a current financial, in, in a current financial statement. Um, the restatement has to also affect an executive officer's performance-based compensation. So um, this metric of performance-based compensation applies to any compensation that's either based wholly or in part on a financial reporting metric that's affected by the restatement. So this includes um, a GAAP financial reporting metric, non-GAAP financial reporting measures, and also uh, includes both stock price and total shareholder return. In one change from the proposed rules, also this is a this is completely um, uh, well in a change from what many companies actually have these this new clawback policy requirement is going is completely no fault. So it the um, executive officer does not need to have had any uh, participation in the financial statements or be in any way at fault in terms of the requirement for the financial statement restatement. It's a completely no fault clawback policy and it's implemented on a no fault basis. Um, um, So the policy will cover compensation that was received during the three fiscal years preceding the year in which the company was required to prepare the restatement. It'll, it applies to both current and former executive officers. And the amount of the clawback is the difference between the amount the executive received and what the executive would have received if the financial statement metric had been correctly um, disclosed. Let's see. Um, So let's talk about very briefly about the exceptions. There are very few exceptions and they're quite limited. There's only three exceptions to the mandatory clawback. Um, If the cost of the recovery would exceed the amount recovered with an obligation on the company to actually uh, explain how they've come to that conclusion. If the clawback would violate um, a home country law for an executive outside of the U.S and if recovery would violate a tax qualified uh, retirement plan contribution made by the company. In terms of disclosure, clawback policies will now need to be filed as exhibits to to the Form 10-K, and there will be a new new Form 10-K checkbox to disclose both restatements and required clawbacks. The new disclosure rules also will require an adjustment to the summary compensation table for clawbacks that have been made under the company's clawback policy. And a new new SK item 402W will require disclosure of information on required clawbacks, um, including the timing of the restatement, the amount of the clawback, and any uh, amount of the clawback that is not yet uh, been uh, recovered by the company. In terms of the uh, implementation of this, the national securities exchanges have been tasked with establishing listing standards by February 27, 2023 requiring companies to comply. So the exchanges will propose their listing standards and then issuers must adopt a written clawback policy that complies with the rules no later than 60 days following the date on which the listing standard becomes effective. Given the date of the publication of the new rules in the Federal Register, um, it's likely that these requirements will be in place in late 2023 and that basically no later than the end of January 2024, companies will be required to have clawback policies in place. Um, Compensation arrangements entered into prior to to the adoption of these new rules are not grandfathered. And so the uh, requirements for clawbacks could apply to compensation that's paid um, in, in the current year, in, in 2023. And I think that will turn it uh, back over to Caroline.
0: Yes. Thanks. And I am next going to cover a few other recent topics um, that we just wanted to make sure companies were thinking about. The first being that this past summer, the SEC adopted a number of amendments requiring electronic filings of certain documents that have historically been able to be filed in paper. So most notable is that Forms 144 will now need to be filed on EDGAR. There will be an online fillable document similar to other fillable forms that are currently available, such as form D and forms three, four, and five, and will delete personally identifiable information in the form. The rules also eliminate the requirement that an affiliate send one copy of the form 144 notice to NASDAQ or NYSE. So the, the key takeaway is that forms 144 for insiders now required to be filed on EGGER will likely result in greater and more immediate scrutiny regarding insider sales. Since form 144 must be filed no later than the date of sale, as opposed to two business days after the sale um, for a form four. The EGGER filing requirement may also end up changing who's responsible for getting the form 144 timely filed. So today brokers generally file on behalf of their clients Um, It's not clear what the brokers will continue to offer this service, and thus it could end up falling on the in-house legal team. So we'd encourage you to engage with any relevant brokers to discuss their plans um, for the electronic filing of Forms 144. And the last thing we'd note is that impacted parties who do not have egg codes currently should plan to get those soon, um, as there may be some, some hoops to jump through to get those codes from the SEC. The new rules will also require companies to furnish their glossy annual reports, which is the company's 14A3 annual report to shareholders delivered in connection with the proxy statement electronically on Edgar in a PDF format, not later than the date on which the report is first sent or given to shareholders. Um, The PDF format cannot be reformatted, resized, or otherwise redesigned from the original format. Um, the submission is not deemed filed unless the company explicitly incorporates the report by reference. These new rules requiring electronic filing supersede prior staff guidance by way of a CDI that posting glossies to the company's website um, was acceptable in lieu of sending to the SEC's offices. Companies using their glossy annual reports in connection with a notice and access solicitation will still be required to publish their annual reports um, to the company's website. And the last line on this slide to note would be Form 11-Ks will also now need to be filed on Edgar. So issuers will need to be mindful about the necessary timeline for inline XBRL and thoughtfully consider any impact to the typical filing process as a result. So these amendments um, became effective on July 11th, and as noted on the slide, the compliance date for electronic filings of all impacted filings other than Form 144s is January 11th, 2023, and the compliance date for electronic filing of Forms 144 is April 13th, 2023, Beginning July 11th, 2025, filers will be required to comply with the inline XBRL requirements for 11K financial statements and accompanying notes, so a, a phase-in period for that filing. Um, and as Anne mentioned, during her discussion um, of the amendments to Rule 10 b 51 companies should be sure to update their Form 4 and 5 templates to reflect the new checks box requirement Um, and be mindful of the 10K cover page as well for the clawback rules um, that Anne discussed. So next, um, we wanted to touch uh, quickly on a few recent whistleblower developments. Um, So as a reminder, the SEC's whistleblower program authorizes the SEC to make monetary awards to eligible individuals who voluntarily provide information that leads to successful SEC enforcement actions the SEC adopted amendments in August to make minor changes that further incentivize whistleblowers. The first change allows the commission to pay whistleblowers for their information and assistance in connection with non-SEC actions in additional circumstances. And the second rule affirms the commission's authority to consider the dollar amount of a potential award for the limited purpose of increasing an award, but not to lower an award. So even without these changes, the opportunity for whistleblowers was real. Um, We know that since the program's inception through adoption of these amendments, the SEC has awarded more than $1.3 billion to 287 individuals. One recent notable case, which is referenced in the first bullet on this slide is the SEC settlement with the Brinks Company in June for violating a whistleblower protection rule The enforcement action is noteworthy, both because the misconduct identified by the SEC relates to otherwise ordinary confidentiality agreements. Brinks required new employees to execute as part of its onboarding process. And because Brinks was penalized for not revising these agreements in light of prior SEC enforcement actions against other companies. So we note this um, because the Brinks enforcement action is a reminder that issuers should review their confidentiality agreements employment agreements, severance and termination agreements, and other similar contracts to ensure um, they do not contain provisions that would be viewed by the SEC as contrary to SEC rules regarding protection for whistleblowers. Um, and with that, I will turn the um, turn it over to John, um, who will close out the program and discuss some board composition um, and director nomination considerations this year.
1: Great. Thanks, Caroline. Um, so, as Caroline mentioned, in this, this final section, I'm going to talk about uh, four topics for companies to consider when assessing uh, board composition and making uh, director nominations this year. Um, and before I get into that, just a reminder if anyone has questions, feel free to add them to the chat. Um, um, and and you know, we'll try to address them at the, at the end of the presentation. Um, so the first uh, first topic is is assessing the skills and experience of your board members and, and and potential nominees as as the board prepares to nominate directors for election at the annual meeting. You know companies are you know do this every year, but just to, just a reminder. Um, you know typically company typically the nominating committee has uh, certain uh, minimum criteria that qualify a person to serve on the board, um, attributes such as you know integrity, having sufficient time to serve on the board, things like that. Um, but beyond those minimum qualifications, the nominating committee should uh, evaluate whether the mix of skills and qualifications of board members uh, will enable the board to operate effectively um, in providing oversight and management in the business and carrying out its fiduciary duties. Um, And and so a a board matrix, which many, many companies use um, can be a useful tool to evaluate whether the board has the the mix of skills, experiences, and backgrounds that cover the competencies needed for the board to carry out its responsibilities. Um, So, uh, you know, on this slide, we've we've included a, you know some sam- sample categories that boards might consider. Um, board matrices may you know often help committee the committee assess whether there are gaps um, and help assess whether a director, um, you know, that has you know that has those skills should be nominated to the board or whether an existing. Um, you know whether an existing director should be tasked to go you know obtain those skills through ongoing board education for example so it's it's really an opportunity to sort of assess you know the mix of skills on your board and 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 figuring out you know where there are gaps and uh and how you might uh, address those gaps um so on the next slide um just you know sort of an update on on board diversity um, which continues to be a, a continued focus in assessing board composition um, so currently there there are two types of director diversity requirements um, mandates and disclosure explain regimes um, so an example of a mandate is California law that required um, publicly held exchange traded companies uh, that had a principal place of business in California um, to include um, uh, uh, between one and three female directors by the end of 2021 and at least one director from an underrepresented community by the end of 2021 and between one and three directors from an underrepresented community by the end of 2022. Um, so that, you know, most recently that that particular law um, was struck down as unconstitutional by the California Supreme Court under the California's Equal Protection Clause. Um, but, you know, many companies incorporated in California and elsewhere are still, you know, still planning to you know comply with the, uh, with, with the requirements of, of that, that mandate. Um, and you know another example is is um, a disclose or explain regime. So um, this you know one example here would be the NASDAQ model. So beginning last last year, uh, NASDAQ required companies to disclose a diversity matrix uh, for directors based on self identified characteristics, um, and that matrix is included either in the company's proxy statement or on its website. Um, and so again, that that requirement was in place for last year. So companies. You will know, we'll have, we'll have included the matrix in their proxy statement from last year or, uh, or on their website. Um, in addition, companies are generally required to have at least one diverse director by um, August 7th, 2023, um, or explain why it does not. Um, and then uh, that number increases. Um, so companies are required to have at least two direct, diverse directors uh, by, depending on the market tier, either August 6 2025 or August 6 2026. Um, so, companies should, you know, of course, be assessing their uh, their you know, board composition and the diversity on their board um, to to you know ensure that they're meeting those um, requirements. Um, just wanted to mention also, boards of five or fewer directors are required to have only one diverse director. Um, there is currently a challenge uh, uh, in the Fifth Circuit um, uh, along the lines of equal protection um, and other claims. Um, so, I think um, I think the the those claims were heard, I think, in September, but I we haven't yet heard um, you know, how the court has ruled. Um and then the next topic is overboarding of directors. Um uh so you know, proxy advisory firms and institutional investors uh, have continued their focus on the total number of director positions they consider appropriate for individuals to hold at any one time. So companies will need to review the standards adopted by. You know, both ISS and, and Glass Lewis, as well as their significant shareholders, um, and be ready to address overboarding concerns in, in discussions with institutional investors. Um, uh, as I, I noted earlier, um, you know, companies are also including whether director candidates have sufficient or adequate time to fulfill their obligations in the list of qualifications for director nominees and in, in their um, in their nominating committee charters. Um, so the next slide has. Um, has a chart of uh, you know various uh, you know Glass Lewis ISS and, and various institutional investors, um, and, and generally for outside directors, ISS and Glass Lewis allow for five total public company board memberships. Uh, for CEOs, ISS allows for three total boards, and Glass Lewis allows for two boards. Um, however, ISS and Glass Lewis will sometimes consider mitigating factors. Um, these might include um, you know just directors' history of attendance. Um uh, and special skills and experience that the director may bring to the board. You know, so oftentimes companies will include an explanation in their proxy statement if they anticipate having um, you know not uh, not meeting these um, uh, you know overboarding targets that are put in place by ISS and Glass Lewis and others. Uh, most institutional investors allow for between four and five total company board memberships for non-executive uh, officer directors. Um and again, this slide shows, you know, a number of um, of larger institutional investors and what their overboarding policies are, um, and then the fourth thing I um, wanted to mention uh, this year is that you know companies should uh, consider whether any director serves on the board of a competitor company. Um, so under the Clayton Act, uh, the Antitrust Federal Antitrust Act, um, no person may serve as a as the director or officer of two corporations. When the corporations meet certain capital and capi- uh, competitive sales thresholds, um, and there's some limited exceptions, um, and this this particular requirement came into focus this year because the Department of Justice and a trust Division recently required interlocking directors to resign, um, and has indicated you know expect, expectation of continued um, active enforcement. Um, so boards and, and nominating committees should should you know of course periodically assess uh, whether there are interlocking directorates. Um, you know, both considering the company's current uh, competitors, as well as you know, thinking about the direction of the company and the direction of the competitors, and whether uh, and, or, or other companies, and, and considering whether at some point in the future, um, you know, companies on which uh, companies directors uh, serve, uh, you know, other boards that, that the directors serve on, whether those companies could you know potentially become uh, competitors in the future, um, and to to plan uh, and analyze accordingly. Um, so with that, I think that brings us to the end of our um, end of our topics. Um, you know, just wanted to you know see if 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 there are any questions in the chat um and also just uh, you know, you know ho- hopefully this brief overview was was helpful to everyone. Um, and you know we we really appreciate everyone uh, attending. Noah, do you know if there were any questions?
0: I don't see any, John.
1: okay. Okay, well, great. Well, thank thank you everyone again for, for attending. Um, you know, again, we we went through these uh, topics relatively quickly. So, of course, if anyone has questions, feel free to reach out to any of us. Um, and I uh, hope everyone has a great day. Thanks, everyone.